0: SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the COSA Underdog Podcast. Joe Wandergan, Eric Henry here with you once again. Hope everyone is staying safe, happy, and healthy out there. Uh, happy Friday to my co-host Eric Henry as we record this. Uh, I know my vacation is just about to start, so happy to uh, you know get out of the get out of the city for a little bit and looking forward to some downtime. But before we do, uh, excited to talk some G5 G- G- F- football with you as always, buddy.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, first off, you know, enjoy vacation. I feel like with the way twenty twenty has worked out, we all deserve just you know a week of PTO from wherever our um, our um, you know work establishment is. Um, so yeah, go ahead and enjoy that uh, vacation time, and then uh, we can dial it up when we get, when you get back. So,
0: hundred percent. Like with the way this year has gone, you couldn't have said it any better. Like we all just need more vacation time like i feel like a that would like stimulate the economy a little more with like (laughs) increased spending and you know like mental health is so important so if you have the opportunity highly encourage everybody to you know get out of your uh usual zone and and just enjoy life as best you can right now um but, you know, one reason that uh, I think a lot of us are going to enjoy life a little bit more this fall is the fact that it seems like we're going to have college football in some capacity, uh, even though we've seen a few leagues say they're already not going to proceed with the fall season. But C.O.S.A. is not one of those leagues. Uh, according to uh, Pete Thamel, C.O.S.A. football is still on for the fall and players and staff are going to be tested three times a week, uh, in especially in weeks of competition. So. I mean, my impression of that plan is I think it's a decent one considering the situation. It's if you're going to try and play football this year, at least having those procedures in place where you can at least help ensure the safety of everybody involved is great. Um, I guess my big question is like, if you're a civilian right now, finding a COVID test is hard. So like, um both impressed and a little confused as to how these, these schools and these leagues are getting access to all the resources you need in order to test players three times a week. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. And you know, Hey, we could go off on a whole political discussion about, you know, that, we all know the, the dirty secret behind that, you know, money talks, BS walks over here in Florida where the kind of the epicenter of sports is right now in uh, Orlando. Of course, I'm in Tampa, but you go up the road about an hour and a half on I-4 in Orlando. And there is, you know, just a surplus of tests for the Major League Soccer, for uh, the NBA and everything else going on in in Central Florida. But then when you look at the actual residents of Orange County, it takes sometimes 10, 14, 17 days to get test results back. So, you know, it kind of is what it is in that sense. Um, It's bringing around to a cultural perspective. I do think it's going to be interesting. Apparently, there is a plan formulated. And it's one of the reasons why I was a little bit surprised that some of the bigger leagues chose to bow out as quickly as they did. Maybe they did their research and realized that they don't have either the accessibility to those tests, or uh, they don't have the ability to pay for it. I find the latter of that less likely given the fact that conference USA schools have somehow found the funding to pay for those tests three times a week. I know I won't mention, you know, some of the, uh, the programs, but I've talked to assistant coaches of various programs and they've said that one of the biggest concerns they had as far as a season happening this year, wasn't necessarily the ability to create a bubble, but just the ability to fund all those tests. And now you're talking about three times a week. And remember, you're not just talking about testing players. You're talking about testing Players, support staff, coaches. I mean, you're talking about roughly 120 to 140 people per week, three times a week. Uh, You know, that's something that I think you have to keep an eye on. It'll be interesting. Um, Also very interested to see what policy they have in terms of access to the players on game day. You know, I don't think it'll be a a situation like normal where someone like myself can just, you know, trot down to the field level and, you know, observe the game pregame. I saw in the NFL, there was, you know, um, excuse me, it wasn't the NFL, I believe it was the American Athletic Conference that came out and said that access to the team bus would be restricted to something about a 30-foot radius and, you know, really trying to just kind of isolate the people who would be on the field away from everyone else. So we'll see how that goes. But overall, yeah, I mean, just my biggest takeaway is, I don't necessarily want to say kudos to Conference USA, but I do think they deserve credit in the sense that, They've said, hey, you know, worst case scenario, and, and I'm, I'm not speaking for anyone in the league office. I'm just kind of, you know, being hypothetical here. Worst case scenario, if we have to cancel the season three, four, five days before a game or in the case of Rice or an FIU, push a couple uh, out of conference games back, we'll do that. But let's keep exhausting all possibilities in each realm to try to get a season in. And so far, it looks like we to be able to do that. So, uh, you know, kudos to Conference USA in that sense.
0: Absolutely. I mean, given everything that's happened in the last six months, the fact that playing football is a possibility is, you know, great and crazy at the same time. But uh, while I'm surprised that CUSA has the resources to do this, I'm ecstatic that they do. And, you know, there's a lot of things that could happen because, say it with me, we're in unprecedented times. Um, But... (laughs) But I I think moving forward, like the fact that COSA is taking this seriously and the fact that they want to do everything they can to proceed with the football season in a situation where the players are protected, the staffers are protected, the fans are protected, it's great to see. And kudos to Judy McLeod and everybody in that office for for making this happen. While, you know, obviously there's going to be bumps in the road and not all of this is going to go off completely without a hitch, um, especially as we've seen – you know, from all the bubble situations and from Major League Baseball and everything else that's happening right now in the sports world, you know, we, we don't have every aspect of this figured out yet. But, you know, taking the knowledge that we do have and setting something like this up is a huge step in the right direction to see where this goes.
1: Um, on we that to, note... Have have quick question, Joe, yeah. before, we, before you transition. Really quick question. Um, yes. What does your gut tell you? Do you think we get fans in the stands in some capacity at CUSA? I know I've seen, I believe it was our guy, Evan Dudley, who said that. UAB was toying around with something like 15 to 20%. Um, I believe uh, Joe Spears tweeted out something about Middle Tennessee, maybe 10, 15%. What does your gut tell you?
0: My gut says that I think we're going to see it in some capacity, you know, a little further into the season. Season, if that makes sense. Um, from everything that I've, I've read and from talking to people and that sort of thing, it's going to be on a case-by-case basis in terms of letting the schools themselves decide what they want to do there. Um, so I definitely think that schools should at least start the season with either no fans or a very limited capacity. Like 25%, I think, would be Uh, a good thing to start off with. And frankly, for some of these programs, I don't think that's necessarily going to be a problem. If you watch CUSA football on a regular (laughs) basis, you know,
1: You you said it.
0: I know. And you know, I, I know that's kind of a low blow, but uh, let's be honest here. If for a lot of these stadiums, if we get to, you know, 50, 75% capacity for, A lot of these games. That's a huge win. So I don't think you know it's a big ask to at least do reduced capacity in some of these stadiums. Um, So I I would love to see it happen in that regard. But my gut says that there's going to be at least one school who tries to go too big too soon, and they're going to you know have some negative consequences to deal with as a result.
1: Yeah, I'll let you transition after this. It's just funny that I I I heard. from USA Twitter, from uh, Florida Atlantic, say that you know, hey, fair if down here in Boca Raton we can't have any fans, but if you go or go to Middle Tennessee, they're allowed to have fans. And I, I said, you know, to this guy, no disrespect, but I, I think these kids can play in front of five people. I don't think it's that much of a competitive advantage. More, uh, <laughs> there weren't that many more fans at Floyd Stadium when I went there last year. Now, granted, that was a monsoon and was homecoming, but still. Um, so I'll let you transition after that, but just want to get your quick POV on that one.
0: For sure. And, uh, Asher O'Hara said it best when he came on our show a couple, a uh, couple of months ago, a lot of these players don't necessarily care whether or not there's fans in the stands. They just want to be able to play the game that they've dedicated so much time and effort to, you know, getting better at over the last However, many years that they've been involved with football. Um, but good news for those players this year will officially not count as a year of eligibility. Uh, the NCAA has decided it, it still needs to uh, be made official by, you know, the main NCAA Board of Governors, I believe, as of this recording. But all signs point to that measure being passed. Um, so here's my thing with this decision I think it's obviously great for the players who are kind of facing a situation that they can't control and will get more time to, you know, enjoy the college experience and perfect their game before they move on to professional levels and that sort of thing. But here's, you know, me playing devil devil's advocate as I'm yep. want to do on this podcast, <laughs> do the conference champions for the, the teams that are going to play this year, get, you know, an asterisk since, you know, as far as the whole, you know, NCAA is concerned, you know, they're not burning a year of eligibility. So they can more or less, you know, do whatever they want and provided they don't get hurt and it not really affects, you know, how they move forward with their, their football career, I guess.
1: If I'm understanding you correctly, Joe, which it's a point that I didn't even consider, um I went totally to the realm of scholarships and you know transfers and stuff like that but from understanding you correctly you're saying that there'd be a potential asterisk because if you if you know you have a senior come back next year why why risk a uh, senior during covid or is that about right
0: yeah i think that's definitely part of it like if you know that you have a a high impact player um who's going to get that extra year of eligibility anyway, why, yeah, exactly, why risk him getting hurt or sick or or whatever if, you know, you're not even going to play a a full schedule necessarily and you're not going to lose a year of eligibility. So I think that's definitely part of this.
1: Yeah, no, you know what, like I said, I had not even considered that aspect. I think that's really interesting. I wonder almost, Joe, if teams would treat it and we'll kind of talk about this as we transition to Southern Miss, half this a little bit later. But I think if there's any year that Conference USA is so wide open, it's this year. FAU loses Chris Robinson. Southern Miss loses a ton of players. You know, COVID. Who knows what what team you may be facing on game day? You know, a team that may be 6-0. A uh, uh, strong defense like UAB, you know, not wanting to speak this into existence but they could lose half of their defense heading into the week. And all of a sudden they get upset, you know, by no disrespect, a a UTEP. So that's an interesting point. I wonder if teams will almost treat it as kind of like the four game redshirt rule where they say, hey, let's see where we are four or five weeks into the season. And if we're not in a position that we think we are ready to compete, let's just, you know, throttle down pull our guys back, get some young guys in, get them valuable, get those guys valuable game experience that maybe you wouldn't see and go from there. I think that's super interesting. Um, the point that I would, I would make is, and once again, this kind of ties into the Southern Miss deal where they lose two players who've chosen to opt out and will transfer next year. I wonder what this does. And I'm again, playing devil's advocate. Cause I don't necessarily even believe that this will be a, a wholesale case, but I wonder what this does for maybe your high impact um seniors, it'd be a guy like Blaze Aldrich. Once again, not want to speak this into existence. But if Blaze Aldridge, who I believe is a senior, I'll have to go back and check this on the fly. If he decides, hey, you know, I'm gonna play this year, and then since it won't count against my eligibility, I'm gonna transfer up to a P5, right? Um, I wonder what it does for guys like those, for example. And we talked a little bit last episode about the the situation with far as scholarships and what that'll do. Um, just real quick, Blaze Aldridge is a senior. I just want to verify that on the fly, but What this does for a situation like scholarships, for example, if, and for those of you who may have not heard the last podcast, I'll succinctly make the point. If you're a team, uh, specifically a G5, and you have, say, 31 guys who you know are going to come off the roster, right? And you know that those will be 31 scholarships that you don't have to fund next year, just because of the fact that people graduate, you can't stay in college forever. Um, What does that do if if you're going to have to come back and fund those guys next year, plus an additional... 20 to 25, however many you sign in signing day. I think that's something that's interesting. And I'll be interested to see how that is worked out. But all in all, I don't want to say there are more questions than answers, because I think the, the intent of the ruling is good. In its nature, it is well-intended because of all the circumstances that these kids are facing. I think the, the nature of it uh, is good. I just think that you're going to have some questions that you will have to answer and maybe some unintended side effects.
0: All very solid points and uh, the situation with COVID and everything like that is just making such a a weird, you know, it's creating such weird circumstances with, uh, you know, as far as eligibility is concerned and and all that. So I'm definitely interested to see how each team handles this, but I think it's going to create such a weird discrepancy. Uh, amongst the teams that are still going to play this fall, that it's going to have a, a, a weird feel to the season. However, I will say I'm I'm extremely happy that we're going to get it, at least football in some form. Knock on wood, heading into you know September and October here. Um, and you mentioned the situation at Southern Miss, so let's just dive into that. Um, so far, Southern Miss has had I believe five players opt out uh, of the season because of COVID and uncertainty surrounding you know, everything there. Um, And uh, I believe they, they've also had, you know, one or two players or, uh, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn, but um, I could be wrong, but I think they've had one or two players uh, test positive as uh, camp starting there. Um, But with the decision that this is not going to count against eligibility for these players, I think, A some of these players might opt to, you know, come back now, <laughs> um, since, you know, they're essentially not going to be burning that crucial year as they try to, you know, decide where their football career is going to go exactly. But, yeah, I think that's kind of the, the main wrinkle that we've seen over the last couple of days with the Southern Miss situation. And, obviously, Jay Hobson said, like, you know, voiced his opinion, which I, I don't agree with Jay Hobson often, but I agree with him (laughs) in that, you know, a spring football season for COSA probably wouldn't work. Um, as, and it's also not really fair to the players if they, you know, are told like they got to play, you know, 22 games or, or whatever in a year. Um, but I think overall, like I think Southern Miss is, is obviously been hit pretty hard by this COVID situation. So I think this decision to give players an extra year of eligibility is actually gonna affect them in a in a positive way.
1: Yeah, just so we don't get anything, you know, potentially misconstrued. Um, I the COVID situation that I see right here as far as Southern Miss, Jaquez Turner, who is, you know, one of the better defensive players in conference USA, should he? in Conference USA. Um, His brother tested positive for COVID-19 and it's had an impact on his family. So his reasoning was that that was enough convincing for him to sit out this season and transfer elsewhere. Um, Also, I mean, Jalen Adams, Joe, just on the field, that guy's a stud. I mean, he is someone who, we talked about it when we had Patrick McGee on. He was essentially the heir apparent to Quez Watkins, you know, Quez Watkins' departure as being the number one guy uh, in terms of, the you know bulk of the receiving yards receiving targets going through him so he was just a stud uh, you know uh, just a guy who's fast ready to get up the field I remember the game this year I'm trying to pull up on the fly here Uh, I want to say and this was him as the number three receiver if my memory serves me correct that he had here we go it's the game against Troy 11 catches for 180 yards I mean those numbers just phenomenal so everyone was really expecting him to have a huge impact I think as far as, and I do um, really quick on Jay Hobson. I I do agree with him as far as his thoughts and sentiments. I guess from a, once again, just from a football perspective, my question is what does this do to Southern Miss? Because as I said, Conference USA West, in my opinion, was really wide open. You look at Louisiana Tech, a team that brings back a ton of talent on offense, Justin Henderson, Griffin Hebert, Adrian Hardy, all those receivers, Willie Baker on defense, even though they lose Amika Robertson. Um, you know, they bring back uh, plenty of playmakers. They're on the defensive side of the ball. The biggest question there is going to be the quarterback position. If you look up and down Rice, they appear to be poised to make that next leap. However, their schedule's tough and they don't have a quarterback right now. You know, um, they have the kid Mike Collins from TCU who transferred in. So I think if you're Southern Miss, you've probably felt good if you're a Southern Miss fan, you felt good having Jack Abraham, who's easily the most stable of all the quarterbacks there out West. But now he loses everybody, you know, they also lost Steven Anderson, who was a backup running back as well. So four guys, it's just, you know, if you're a Southern Miss fan, you kind of have to wonder what exactly is going on. I don't think there's too much need of a need for speculation and thinking it's a Jay Hobson situation, or maybe it's, you know, I saw some speculation on Twitter about, is it a culture situation? I don't necessarily think it's that. I, I do wonder though, just because of how hard, and I wrote this almost two years ago now that G five specifically, Conference USA tend to be hit hardest when it comes to players transferring to Power Five schools. You have to wonder how much it, it, are the transfers? Are they a COVID situation, or are they? um Were they players who would have chosen to transfer and pursue other opportunities? Uh, you know, otherwise, who knows? As you mentioned, given the ruling that's in place now, it, it kind of makes that null and void. Should they choose to want to come back? Or simply just say, Hey, I'm going to take this year off, not risk COVID and pursue my, my chances at another school elsewhere. It'd be interesting to see out of the players who transfer. I think Turner is probably the most likely to land at a, at a P5 school. Yeah. And we'll uh, we'll talk a little bit more about
0: transfer players uh, a little later on in the episode, but that's an interesting point about the effect that that could have. And speaking of transfers, uh, let's take a road trip up to Huntington, West Virginia real quick and talk about the Isaiah Green situation. Uh, If you'll remember uh, a couple episodes ago, we talked about how he entered the transfer portal back in July and kind of what Marshall's quarterback options were given his departure. But uh, as of now, it looks like he's back with the uh, thundering herd. Is that correct?
1: That is correct um uh, it was reported that isaiah green i believe it was 247 sports they do a phenomenal job as far as tracking the transfer portal who's in who's out things of that nature um if i got that wrong i will try to correct it here on the fly i always like to give proper attribution but he is back in huntington with the team and and it's something that quite frankly um joe i'd definitely be curious to get your thoughts it's a double-edged sword right so I remember our guy Steve Helwick. If you haven't read his article from UDD, I'd recommend taking a look at it. He actually speculated could Armani Levias, um, or excuse me, Arf- Armani Levias, wrong tight end, um, could Xavier Gaines be a, a potential option there at quarterback, given his his um, you know pro- prolific high school career as a quarterback here in the state of Florida. But I just think that, <laughs> and I guess this is my question for you, Joe. Is there a possibility that Green may have lost the team? I mean, A, we talked, you know, ad nauseum on this podcast about how inconsistent he's been. Then he chooses to leave. And I think any player should have the opportunity to leave, but we all know how that may be perceived in the locker room. Who knows what went into that decision, but he still chose to transfer and now he's back. Uh, First thing to think that that comes to mind is, can he gain the respect of his fellow players? But B, does he have the trust of that coaching staff there? You know, I mean, that's something that I think you have to take into account. Um, But just on the field, the other side of that double-edged sword is there's no denying that Green probably is the best option there at quarterback, uh, given what's left on the roster.
0: hundred percent agree with you on that last point that Isaiah green is absolutely their best option at quarterback moving forward. And unless something drastic happens, I don't really see them going with anybody else at QB one heading into the season here to address your other point about, you know, his leadership and and losing a team and, and that sort of thing. Um, I guarantee you there are players and staffers within Marshall football right now who are, would look at Isaiah green, given everything that's happened. And, you know, I've definitely lost, you know, a little bit of respect for him or whatever you want to call it. I agree with your point that players should be able to transfer and do what they want and do what makes the most sense for them and, and their family. But that's just look at the facts that there are absolutely players and staffers within football who Take loyalty to your team and your program very seriously. So, I think the fact that Isaiah Green did make the decision he did to enter the transfer portal last month and now come back, that's absolutely affected how some of his teammates and some of his, his staffers and coaches perceive him for sure. Um, whether or not he lets that affect his game and affects how the team performs, we'll see. But, you know, I, I think it's naive to assume that. Nobody on that team or within that program has hard feelings about what happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the broader point that I was making there is that, you know, I put to you this way, I would feel the same way. I don't think it's necessarily the fact that Isaiah Green struggled on the field. I would say the same thing if it were Obi Obialo who were returning, right? Someone who we know certainly has a ton of talent, but the fact that he transferred in from Oklahoma State you know, played reasonably well at Marshall, certainly a ton of talent was injured the majority of last year. And then the little glimpse that Marshall fans get of him, he, you know, turns on his talent and shows that he could be one of the top receivers in CUSA and then gets the P five offer from Oklahoma and is gone. I think his teammates will look at him the same way as they would in Isaiah green. I don't think it's a matter of necessarily the performance on the field as much as it is, dude, you chose to opt out, you know, uh, or I I guess opt out takes a different term in, in the COVID world we're in. You chose to transfer or enter your name in the transfer portal. So I do agree with you there, Joe.
0: We're aligned on that then. Um, so, you know, it, there's definitely been, um, you know, a lot to to be sad about <laughs> in the course of the last uh, few weeks or so, but um, did want to make uh, mention of this. Uh, we, we learned, of course, uh, in the past couple of weeks, that uh, assistant coach Aubrey Hill down at FIU, uh, unfortunately passed away from uh, his battle at cancer. He was 48 years old. Um, so, you know, of course, um, condolences to the entire program down there as they kind of deal with that loss. But um, you know, obviously this, you know, kind of came out of nowhere, but, you know, speaking strictly from a, a football sense, Eric, uh, you spent a lot of time covering the FIU program and, and everything like that. Um, you know, how are they kind of feeling about, you know, that loss uh, heading into, you know, fall camp here as that continues to progress? And, you know, how does that kind of affect what they want to accomplish on the field?
1: Yeah, Joe, I mean, once again, you know, first and foremost, just, Condolences to the FIU football family, you know, his wife, Shanae, um, really tragic situation. As the details came out, I remember I, I learned about it Sunday afternoon on Twitter. I saw, you know, RIP coach Hill. And I, I was like, wait a minute, what, you know, it just seemed so out of the blue, almost reminiscent of the situation last year with the death of former FIU cornerback, Emmanuel Lubin. The situation, Joe, was Coach Hill was diagnosed with cancer and he kept it private. You know, the only people who really know who knew were some of the coaches on the staff and his family, you know, and, and having covering FIU for the past two and a half years. And you never saw him miss a practice, at least any practice that we were privy to see. I emphasize that because, A, with COVID, we don't have media access. Media doesn't have access to the fields. And B, not every practice is, is open to to the public. So you know, there were certain things that we didn't see. Um, but yeah, Coach Davis just said that it, the really tragic thing about it, he um, had a Zoom press conference on this past Tuesday. And the really tragic thing about it was that I guess there was some hope that he was starting to feel better and was texting some of the coaches like, hey, you know, um, I think I'm going to make it back out for some of the fall practices. And then Coach Davis told us that kind of within a 48-hour span, things just took a turn for the worst and, and he passed away. And, you know, only 48 years old, that's just – really tragic down here in florida the guy beloved by so many people spent time as, as a receiver playing for uf did in the steve Spurrier fun and gun days did um did a couple years at miami I want to say it was four or five years as a recruiting coordinator and receivers coach coach at his alma mater for uh, about five six years as well was a beloved high school coach uh, at, at excuse me, not Coral City. At Carroll City High School, definitely will get um, some backlash if I mix up those two. At Carroll City High School in Miami, won a state championship. So, so many of the players who either played against FIU or played with FIU who are from South Florida, know Aubrey Hill. So just hugely beloved and just a tragic situation all the way around. As far as, you know, what they're going to get done on the field, you know, it it almost feels improper to speculate, but um, there hasn't been any speculation as far as whether they're going to uh, replace him at receivers coach i almost feel like it'd be you know with everything going on that's probably the last thing on their mind as far as replacing him um not sure who's been who's been you know working with the receivers obviously someone probably has when coach hill wasn't available so i would assume whoever that is we haven't been made you know privy to who that was um that whoever that was will probably hold that role on an interim basis throughout the season Good to
0: know. And again, we give our our deepest condolences to everybody within the FIU football program as they deal with that situation right now, as well as uh, Coach Hill's family. And uh, we know he'll be missed throughout the league. Um, so, with that, let's uh, let's turn the. Uh, vibe of the show into something a little more positive for the FIU Panthers. And that is the addition of Dante keys to the roster. Uh, he transfers to the FIU defensive line from North Carolina, a and T and, um, you know, Eric, I know this is going to open up a a kind of a wider discussion as we uh, begin to wrap the show up here, but, uh, what
1: can you tell me and the people at home about what Dante keys brings to the table here? He, to be honest, Joe, I think that's, Kind of what you're going to see as far as maybe a potential side effect of some of these leagues and some of these teams having to suspend sports until the spring, as far as COVID is concerned. He's someone who there's no reason to believe he would be at FIU if it weren't for COVID shutting down a lot of FCS football, specifically the MIAC conference where he came from, because he was one of the top offensive linemen in FCS, someone who was very much considered a draft prospect. You know, a six-four, three hundred pound right tackle played 795 snaps last year, only gave up three sacks. Definitely someone who, uh, you know, has a ton of experience. He started the past 21 games down there for the Aggies, was absolutely projected to be, should he have a good year this year? And, you know, things like the combine, who knows how that will happen, if that will happen, but, um, and all-star games as well. But was someone who was definitely projected to get a, a solid look at, you know, being a, Player from a historically black college and university to the NFL, which is very rare. So that just kind of speaks to his talent as well. Joel Rodriguez, the offensive line coach at FIU, was instrumental in his recruitment, getting him to FIU. And I think it's a win win for both sides. You know, he's someone who, without a fall, fall football, there's really no opportunity that he would have had really to make the league. You know, it's spring. It just wouldn't have worked given the way that the NFL is going to work in their schedule. So the fact that he can latch on with a a conference USA program and it works out well for both sides. And I would also say that definitely expect to see more of this in the future within the next, I would say two to three weeks. We saw the mountain West conference. Unfortunately, the name escapes me right now, but uh, a player who was projected to be their defensive player of the year, the preseason pick, land at Arkansas State. So I think you're going to see a lot of players who are on that cusp of being NFL prospects, NFL draft prospects, who, quite frankly, it's, you know, I don't want to say do or die. It feels like an, an appropriate idiom. Um, but their their hopes as far as making an NFL roster really hinge on playing in the fall. So I think you're going to see a lot of players transfer from whichever league that, they're, that, they were, um, that their school was at to a Conference USA or a Sunbelt team specifically, just because when you look at it, I think those two leagues, A... They're the ones that are playing them in the American, in addition to, you know, potentially the SEC and ACC. But B, if you transfer to a G5, I think it gives those players the best opportunity to come in and start immediately, as opposed to going to a P5 league where, you know, those guys have been kind of in their positions probably two or three years. Uh, I think if those guys transfer to one of those leagues, they're probably looking at a backup role, if best. So expect to see more of those in the future.
0: 100 percent and uh you're thinking of linebacker jason rice from uh, fresno state who's now with arkansas state um expect him to have a, a pretty decent impact on uh what the red wolves are trying to accomplish over in the Sun Belt conference there but um yeah this brings up an interesting point with you know the fact that the season is divided now and you have these players who need to play in the fall in order to you know just get some extra film or, or what have you in order to be filled draft in the spring. Um, And I think this presents a unique opportunity for the programs in COSA, the Sunbelt and the American now um, to, you know, lure in some of these players from the PAC 12, from the big 10, from, you know, possibly even the FCS level, who, as we saw with, uh, with Dante keys here, um, because they have this opportunity to play in the fall I think we're going to see a few of these transfers continue to land within those leagues. And, you know, they're just getting access to these recruits and these players that they really wouldn't have had access to if the season had, you know, played out as it has in the last, you know, hundred years or whatever, like with every league playing at the same time. So as you as you said, there's a really unique opportunity here for uh you know, keys and the programs that are bringing in these players to, you know, do something, you know, possibly even leapfrog some of their other uh, compatriots who are waiting until the spring to try and make something happen.
1: Yeah. I think that last point right there, Joe is where you nailed it because the, for the, you know, you look at the leagues that are canceled and let's also emphasize this, not that you want to wish anything negative on any of these players, but if you're a G five player, if you're an FCS player who has a draft grade, right? A potential draft grade right now, you have a really good chance. If you can get to a team that's playing in the fall to leapfrog, not only your compatriots in in the G5, but other P5 leagues that aren't playing like the PAC 12 or, you know, the big 10, if you can do that, I mean, that would be huge. So I think if you are a player in that position, it's huge and almost imperative that you can get to one of those schools, because that could be the difference between Joe. You and I have talked about this uh, last year when we talked about the draft, we felt that the lack of combine because of the COVID situation, the, the, so the lack of combines across the G5 level really hurt a lot of the players, maybe in CUSA. I mean, we can name a ton of C, CUSA guys who we thought may have been legit draft prospects who didn't end up getting, you know, even a free agent look because they did, couldn't test. So if you can get to a, a school like, you know, an FIU or a CUSA school or whichever it may be, I I think that's huge. So, I mean, I almost feel, you know, like I said, expect to see more of those within the next 10 to 14 days. And I almost feel that it it, in some sense is going to be a way to level up guys.
0: hundred percent. So, you know, with the fact that we are getting football in some form in the fall, this just adds another really interesting wrinkle to this season and uh, it's going to have lasting impact across all of of D1 FBS football, um, as we're already seeing here. Um, So that will be certainly interesting to watch. And uh, we are looking forward to watching it with all of you. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I know we are obviously planning on doing more of these throughout the summer as the situation continues to progress. And uh, we're only a few weeks away from uh, the projected start of the fall campaign here. So stay with us as we cover that as we have done the last few years here. Uh, If you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And of course, at Underdog Dynasty for uh, G5 football coverage as we head into a really crazy time for the sport. Happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.